0: Join us at The Hedge for a conversation about engineering, technology, and business. In this episode, Russ White, Alvaro Rotana, and Brian Trammell dig into
1: optional security.
0: TF and standard stuff, which should be really, really cool in our So how are you today, Alvaro? You doing okay? I'm
2: doing very well. It is my first time. You know, I'm just uh, looking forward to this.
0: Good, good. Well, you may not after we're done. (laughs) (laughs) You may regret this whole thing. So Brian, Brian, Trammell wrote this really, really cool draft on optional security not being optional. I really liked the draft and I thought it was really important to talk about. So we invited uh, Brian on to talk with us about this draft. And he was saying earlier, he was going to introduce it with a crying baby, but that didn't work out. So, <laughs> so, so Brian, just back up. What, what is the point of this? What are you trying to get to with this draft? Where are you trying to go?
1: So, so I'll, I'll, I'll answer the, the question a little bit more, more narratively about like why I decided to write it, right? Like, so which is a slightly different question than what I'm trying to get to with it. Okay. Um, this basically came out of a paper that was presented at IMC 2017 uh, that was looking at incentives in uh, deployment for DNSSEC. I'm, this is, I'm doing this from memory, so I might be getting the countries right. There were It was looking at the .se and the .nl ccTLDs. Okay,
0: and so one are. of them is NL? Uh, nl. is New Zealand, is that right?
1: Uh, nl is the Netherlands, and oh, SE is okay. Sweden, right? Like, so it's basically, Sweden. you know, kind of right next to each other, Northern Europe. Okay. With um, very active research communities in both of their sort of cctld sort of that that DNS space, right? And they they had two different. Both of them were trying to incentivize the deployment of DNSSEC. One of them, and I'm not going to name them because, like, you know, I don't want to I don't want to like embarrass the wrong people. One of them basically was like, we're just going to look at, you know, whether or not the thing is signed and then we'll, you know, we'll give, you know, some financial incentive that goes down to the registrar and then they can pass it on to whoever. Uh, And the other one was basically based on continuous monitoring, right? Like, so not only are we going to make sure that there's actually a signature, like a a, a DS key um, R type in there, we're actually also going to make sure that it's valid and that everything that you sign with that is also valid and we're going to, we're going to keep you up on it. Right. So you get the financial incentive. And I think it was, it was something like, you know, you, you, your registration is cheaper, right? Uh, You get the financial incentive if you do it right, as opposed to you get the financial incentive if you do it. Lo and behold, the one that had the financial incentive to do it right saw much more correct deployment of DNSSEC. And, you know, DNSSEC is, is, is one of these deployment stories. It's been, you know, it's taken a very, very long time to get, you know, like each stage of it going because it's a kind of a large coordinated migration of what's fundamentally an uncoordinated system, right? Like these are always hard. Well, well, um,
0: and worse than that, you're facing the tragedy of the commons, right? Which is exactly. very true with a yeah. lot of these systems, right? So I'm doing the work as a provider to deploy this and you're getting the benefit as a
1: customer. Right.
0: So why, why would I do that? Right.
1: Exactly. Right. <laughs> so this was the, this was the whole point of like the, so the, I forget the numbers of them. I should have them in front of me. The, um, so Dave Thaler's two uh, IAB uh, RFCs. Uh, one was so Thaler and Aboba, what, Um, Makes for a successful protocol, fifty-two something, and then there was planning for protocol transitions, which was one that that, that was a seven thousand series. It's a more recent one, and and in both of these, it's like, look, you know, there's, you know, I'm not going to move unless I can see some benefit to me. The dot case was like, hey, we are interested in seeing the the internet get better, and we're going to fund it, right? We have money, and we can point the money at it. We'll we'll see like actually, if it works, and it looked like it did. So that got me thinking, there's sort of like three pillars of security of identity in in uh, the internet, right? There's BGP, there's DNS, and there's like the application layer, so HTTP or IPsec you have to get all three right if you have, want to have a a, you know, a secure network. So I decided to then look at like each of these and look at the deployment state of each of these. And that's when this base rate fallacy thing fell out, this P versus Q thing, right? This, you know, turning on DNSSEC with the state of the tooling about five years ago was basically just adding availability risk for no reason, right? It's like you're going you're gonna to switch it on and it's going to break and it's your fault that it broke. And you get a a benefit that you're not really, it's not really clear what the benefit is. So it's like, okay, so I get nothing and I lose. No, thank you.
0: There's a risk and there's no upside at all. Right.
1: The principle here is that any point at which you like have one of these protocols, it's like, okay, first, there's no security, and then there's security, right? Security is, is these features are are always about preventing the wrong thing from happening. And the mechanisms by which they prevent the wrong thing from happening are, you know, removal of availability, essentially, right? So if you have a false positive rate at all, because the tooling is bad and you don't actually know, you know, it's very easy to get wrong. The first DNS registrar I dealt with that actually did do DNS sec. It was like a text form on a web, uh, on a web page that you had to paste the basics 64 stuff that you wanted into the, in, into the resource records, like manually, right? There was no validation. There was no any, right? It was like, here you go. Good luck. Right. And that's just basically asking for false positives. And this, this, you know, in the early in the the adoption curve on these things, the false positive rate is always going to be higher than the true positive rate. The true positive rate is, hey, somebody's actually trying to 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 spoof your uh, DNS with a cache poisoning, or they're trying to, um, so in BGP they're trying to announce an invalid route so that they can hijack you. Those occurrences are thankfully relatively rare. Um, and the occurrences of the, of the false positive due to the, you know the tooling is you know, the tooling is never going to be perfect on the first day, right? You, you can't do that, so you're always going to have this hump to get over. And that was sort of the idea: is like we've built a set of uh, of protocols where we're trying to add security by getting over just this hump that's, that is a fundamental part of the physics of the protocol. And then we wonder why it doesn't deploy.
2: So right in the draft of, you, oh, go ahead, Albert. I was going to say that one of the interesting things about trying to get over that hump is that yes, it happens very seldom that a problem happens when you get a, a route hijacked, for example. But but in many cases, when that happens, it's a very big thing. Yep. You know, YouTube gets hijacked, right? It's it's not you know my little website here at home or anything. It is something really big that happens, and, and even we see that we still resist we still think maybe, oh, this is never gonna to happen to me or uh, I'm not YouTube anyways. I, I, it doesn't matter that I do it or not. So it, okay. it seems to be both, right? The, the resistance of this is not gonna happen and the not wanting to risk, I'm gonna get all these false positives.
1: So this, this is a thing that I've been thinking about in a draft that I haven't written yet is the trade-off between sort of like managing outage, Versus managing risk, right? And a lot of people in, in operations, the target is managing outage, right? It's like that's it's real easy to measure. You know when it's happened. Um, you have procedures in, in 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 place for you know recognizing it, mitigating it, and and then um, transitioning back to a good state. There's really not a a good toolkit for thinking about risk, right? And like specifically in the BGP. State right, like so. Doing uh, a uh, RPKI route validation and enforcing that validation, and then dropping a route that causes you to, you know, drop a customer, right? So that's money that you're not getting anymore if you're a if you're an upstream, and you may have you know contractual penalties because you have an SLA for that uh, for that connection. That versus this risk of oh all of our um, traffic for this whole block of customers is going to go to, um, you know, some country that we don't want it to go to um, for long enough to cause a problem is it's hard to measure, right? Like it's, it's, you know, you, you tend to manage toward what you know how to measure and what you know how to measure is the outage. Um, That's kind of an inchoate thought, right? Like that's like two steps beyond what, what's here. And I can, you know, like in a, 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 the thing with it, so BGP hijacks exactly right. Like so, the the thing with that is that the probability is quite low. The cost can be enormous, right? Like so, in some cases it can be reputational cost that could you know severely damage an organization. And you get this this you know this this normal mathematics problem where you take a very very tiny number with a lot of uncertainty on it, and you multiply it by a gigantic number with a lot of uncertainty on it. You can get any number you want, right? And and that's I think why risk is hard and and outage is easier because we build monitoring for it, right? So it's. Right. Yeah. moving moving this operations to the point where we can manage risk is, is a thing that is very interesting to me now. Um, yeah, but yeah. it's actually
0: worse. It's actually worse because you could, you could see a hijack or what you think is a hijack. It's a false positive and you go out and you block it. But yep. it turns out that what you're blocking is one of your customers access to a service that they use. Right. Well, now not only you're still getting the upstream costs from them, they're still your customer, but now you have to spend hours troubleshooting until you figure out, oh, wait, that was my fault. So you're incurring a lot more costs than you might otherwise incur uh, because you just don't know that you're actually causing that problem. Right. So the financial costs could be bad for the customer, make you look bad for the customer, and it could be bad for you directly in troubleshooting time.
1: So it's Or you can do the easy thing and just leave the checkbox checked off, right? Like right. just turn it off.
0: Right. So, so you talk about P and this Q. Talk a little bit about, you were talking about that, but then you put those numbers on those. What are the P and Q? How does that relate to your to your? So, so this is?
1: is this is kind of like terminology that I, I like halfway invented. Um, there, it doesn't actually come from the original paper. So this was um, uh, something that I actually uh, thought a lot about two careers ago now, uh, when I was working in security monitoring, which is what is like, you know, looking at the false and true positive rates of um, anomaly detection systems, right? And uh, the base rate fallacy is that anytime that you're dealing with things that are rare, your your positive rate is going to multiply in such a way that it's like most of your time, you're going to spend chasing things that didn't happen, right? And this was a problem with sort of like early, um, sort of like, uh, I'm going to monitor my network by just taking snort out of the box in 1998 and using the default rules that come with snort in 1998 most of them don't matter to your organization and a lot of them are, are not really tuned in such a way that you're getting actionable stuff so what you've done is you've created a system to file tickets for the people in your sock to just go in and waste time and delete exactly as you said right you can end up with a a problem specifically on that, that uh, security monitoring uh, setup where you end up with um, alert fatigue, right? So it's like the last 98 times I saw this hijack alert fire, it was garbage. Um, so I'm not going to react to the 99th one. And the 99th one is that actually the one that sends all my traffic to the place I don't want it to go. Right. So it's, it's, and the insight was basically taking this sort of this bait rate, base rate fallacy and then applying it to um, the evolution of a protocol that's transitioning from an insecure variant to a secure variant or a, you know, a protocol that was originally deployed without security, uh, adding this optional security, which is where optional security is not an option comes from.
2: Yes, that is always a a, a hard leap to take, to take something, as you said, that you're already used to operating uh, that you feel very comfortable with. And now you need to add all this extra stuff, this extra risk from configuration. The benefits are not are not clear at all. I think uh, what you say in, in, your, in your draft is that many times we actually overestimate what the incentives may be and think that this is going to be so great and that's why we're doing it. But then reality hits in and, and it's really hard to get to a point where people are using it uh, or can use it. Uh, you made the point about, about tools and being able to monitor what is actually happening. Uh, without that, a lot of the deployments are really, really hard. Right.
1: I think that this is beginning to change, though, right? Like So it's it's funny because uh, when you approached me about doing this podcast, I, I went and I, I looked at the draft and I'm like, I, you know, I, I wrote this a while ago and I've had a bunch of other stuff going on and I haven't really, uh, you know, tried to drive it forward. What do I really want to do with it? You know, at some point, I'd act, I think I would actually like to get it um, published as an RFC the I went back and I looked at sort of each of the three areas, though, and if you look at sort of like the DNSSEC, the thing that originally got me thinking about this is like, hey, we we have running code that shows us that financial incentives can improve this. Right. Then do you have in the architecture a set of organizations that are central and can actually provide that incentive. Right. Right. It's the it's the the. Um, registries can do this. It has to, you know, the registry has to want to do it, but they also, in many cases, have the financial wherewithal to support tooling and so on and so forth. If you look at RPKI, there are sort of the five RARs or sort of the, the the distributed routes for RPKI. And um, I'm really encouraged by a lot of the stuff that's been coming out of uh, the RIPE region specifically. RIPE is actually driving RPKI um, uh, deployment forward um mainly as i can tell through tooling right they're just basically tooling and advocacy it's uh there were a couple of uh good talks on this i think the better one was two Ripe's ago so not Reykjavik. i forget so ripe 78 i forget exactly where that was uh Job snyder's had a pretty good talk about the state of rpki and sort of like you know seeing this curve begin to take off and essentially by by um by making the tooling better, you're bringing that false positive rate down to the point where the, the the risk of turning it on starts to go down. And then same with, you know, with HTTPS, you also have like, you know, Let's Encrypt also brought the cost of doing this um down quite a bit right and it made it easier to screw up a certain and get it fixed right so there's um i'm a little bit more optimistic than i was when i originally wrote this draft because the idea is is hey you actually can use external incentives to drive this and i was originally thinking the external incentives will never align in such a way that you'll get over this hump right and and now I'm starting to think that for some of these protocols, the the, the people who are driving those incentives have recognized that the hump maybe not as big as as uh, it looks, and you can make at least regional uh, progress on this. So
2: that is definitely true. Um, you know, Ripe is definitely doing a lot of work. Um, I do quite a bit of work with LACNIC. and mm-hmm. um, in terms of percentages, they're about the same coverage as Ripe is. And you know, to a point about tooling and, and incentives, that's exactly what Lightning has done. In fact I, I was with them uh, maybe six or seven years ago, with their first uh, in-country, I guess we call the deployment of um, origin validation in Ecuador. We, it's a small country, we, we sat everyone down, everyone who owns an IP address, we sat down in, in a room and we locked the door, actually, until everyone signed their ROS. Um, you know, we sold them on the idea and everything else. And, you know, there was one exchange point in the country. And so it was relatively easy, and and, um, we enabled uh, dropping routes, dropping packets at the exchange point for all the local routes. So, you know, we we, we do there.
0: Did you order a pizza and leave it outside the room so they could smell it? while you were putting the paperwork in front of them. It, it, them it right
2: was door. a good incentive, yes. <laughs> it was cheap. It did cost us a lot, yes. Yes, we, we, got, we got food and everything else. But, but you know, the point is, is that, yes, unless we have registries doing these things, uh, you know, the other thing that RIPE did that, that helped a lot of people was their validator, which, interestingly enough, now LACNIC has done their own validator as well with uh, the NIC in uh, Mexico. Um, but, you know, what we figured out in like, many, many years ago was that if we wanted to do this, we had to go step by step. So I think this, the same uh, story has happened in Ripe where one uh, Exchange Point, for example, started dropping packets. Uh, and others saw, hey, this is not that bad. Let's start doing it as well in our, in our implementations. So um, I think okay. that's the other part that, that you do mention in your draft, the fact that you see the protocol actually working. And then you, you actually realize that there's a benefit to doing what, what, what needs to be done. right.
0: Or it won't hurt as much as you think it will to do it a lot of times. That's that's the other side of it too. Yeah. Now but talking about not hurting in that as much as people think, there are trade-offs with these things. And then in some cases, we never get over the hump because it's not just that the hump is there, it's that the field rightly intuits or the operators rightly intuit that the trade-off is not worth making. And that's something that I think that the security people particularly don't always like to hear that answer that, Oh, this is perfect. This will work. This will make this so much more secure. And the people in the field are looking at it and going, yeah, but the cost is 10 times more than what you think it is. And the security solution, all security solutions are only 80%. Anyway, honestly, Uh, there's no perfect security. We'd like to think there is, but there's not. So is the cost really the, worth the 80% you know, that you're going to solve? And sometimes the answer is just no, unfortunately. Uh, and I don't know how we know the, those, those types of cases. I don't know how we can, just other than trying to deploy it and seeing what happens.
1: Well, that's that, you know, that's that you know, risk versus outage management right. question again, right? And the risk thing is like the unknowns are, um, for most of these, the unknowns are too high to actually be able to reason about it in any sort of uh, rigorous way. And then, yeah, so you, you you going uh, to go back to your point about, you know, some of these protocols are useful and some of them are less useful. I don't think you put it that way, but that's, you know, that's what I heard. <laughs> um you'll well, notice well, that like so the. <laughs> I, mean,
0: I i would say that they're all possibly useful but some the cost for the useful the cost yeah
1: the benefit the, is the, really the out the of The cost utility curve exactly yeah. is and you'll notice that like the 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 most recent version of this draft which was uh october 17th um so that was right after a right actually the uh that version gets much more um, optimistic about RPKI than it used to be. And it doesn't get much more optimistic about BGP sec at all. Um, right. So it's like, there were two sort of parts of this, this, um, uh, ecosystem, right. That are, you know, interact. They're not really, they're not really interlocking pieces. They're interacting pieces. Um, and one of them is easier to put the incentives together to get people to see a win, early on and the other one let us say optimistically we simply have not found that yet right
0: well and um, i'll just be blunt and say i'm not sure we ever will with bgp sec i think the cost is simply too high for what you get out of it for the most part and and, and in this case what we need to do is we need to say the problem still exists maybe we need to back up and take another run at fixing it rather than assuming Mm -hmm. that that is the right solution is what we have today all the time. Um, I mean, I know know we went through this with DNSSEC as well, right? DNSSEC is not the first iteration of trying to secure DNS. Let's be honest. There are several iterations before what's there today finally deployed, right? And TLS the same way. TLS is this is not the first run at trying to encrypt traffic on the wire. And distribute certificates and do everything else that, that go with that.
2: Right. The other piece with uh, origin validation and uh, path validation, right, with BGP Sec, is that with the diameter of the internet, which is, I don't know, four or five hops around uh, from any two different points, um, there are other ways where you can secure by having origin validation. So if you secure the first half, for example, on both sides, it leaves you the, the, the central, the, the main transit provider, for example, uh, to secure. As we see more consolidation and other changes in the architecture of the internet, uh, that changes as well. And the path becomes shorter in many cases. Right. Right. So that means that we can you know, protect it without having all the full uh, BGPsec uh, implementation uh, deployed anywhere.
0: Right. And, and to make, I mean, if you listen to Jeff Houston's research, the hub and spokish nature of the internet is moving on. And we're actually getting to the point where the transit providers aren't carrying the majority of the traffic anyway. And so everything now is IX, customer IX, um, or customer local peering to a large service provider, a large content provider. So in that case, origin validation might be more important. Another example of this is TLS. I was reading some research recently that talked about how some very high percentage, much higher than I expected, and it's not huge, it's maybe 5% or 10%, I don't know what the number was, of TLS, section, of TLS sessions or MITM, the man in the middle. And mm-hmm. it's not – it's just – it's the way things work. You put a firewall out there or you put – other things out there a proxy out there and they man in the middle a lot of antivirus software actually MITMs all of your all of your um, all of your TLS sessions coming from your browser going out to the real world and so this is a very common thing and then you think well how effective is TLS if it's really being man in the middle that much or is it okay because it's all from trusted parties or how does that actually work right so you start thinking through those questions and things get a little more complex sometimes than you might have initially um.
1: so so that's an entirely different podcast um (laughs) it it probably runs like five or six episodes because i i also worked a lot in that space um sort of with the um, you know, in the ITF on in-band signaling to replace the information that a lot of the TLS interception was trying to pull off of the uh, pull off of right. the wire by just intercepting TLS. Um, and I think that the the problem is is that there was you know the interface to a protocol or to any system really is not the interface that's published; it's the interface that exists, right? And TLS 1.2 had this this feature um, that if you could insert yourself into the certificate chain, you can just man in the middle. You know, it's like you didn't, there's no certificate paying. There's no, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's no bootstrapping that cert But th- this was a feature of, uh, this was an interface that TLS 1.2 provided for um, organizations that um, for whatever reason had a, a policy that they needed to see all the traffic going out of the organization. Right? Like, so that 10% or I haven't seen the research, but let's say that the number was 10%. Um, that 10% is people browsing from large enterprises because many large enterprises have this as a a requirement. They want to make sure that the the web browsing um, is not exfiltrating customer data for their customers, right? Like, so it's, that's difficult to do unless you own all the endpoints or if you hit it in the middle and in the middle is cheaper. So that's what got sold. And that's you know, when you move to to um, TLS 1.3, when you don't have um, the ability to do pre-shared keying, um, when you have certificate pinning it everywhere, that is going to be a very um, that is going to shake out. I don't have no idea how it's going to shake out. Uh, that's a different podcast, though. I'd be yeah. I'd be um, interested in in. A panel that you could assemble for that—that um, that
0: might be fun. i will i put that on my list of podcast ideas. Actually, that's a really, yeah, that's actually an interesting, very interesting discussion.
2: Uh, as I was reading the draft, I, I um, you know, most of the things that you talk about—you know, ASVS uh, and and the DNSSEC and the RPKI—they're all internet-wide um, implementations, right? As you mm-hmm. said, you, you want to get all three things correct so that you can have a secure communication, um, that has the routing, the, the application, um, and you have a set of, of recommendations um, that you put out in there that from the experience that you saw that, that were working. Um, why don't we go through those? And then I'll ask you the next question that I really want to ask, yeah. um, which is what do we do with
1: non-internet-wide security? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, cause I haven't thought about it. <laughs> um, yeah, let me go through the recommendations. It'll give me, yes. a to, oh, give me a second to think about the, 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 the hard question. Um, so yeah, like number one, I think the, is the, the insight from the the DNS sec work, um, was sometimes you can just pay people to get over it. Right. And that's not quite where we are with our PKI, but I think you could say the donation of tooling that works to the community is a form of payment, right? It's the, the tooling is bad. You're not actually going to get, um, oh, actually that was my third recommendation. Was it, wasn't it? Right. So, um, the, you're, you're either like getting people over that, you know, the PQ difference, um, by paying them, um, you're, uh, going to make it easier for them to make that choice on their own or you're going to have some sort of coordinated effort so the the dns flag day right was a uh, was an example of this for turning down a lot of uh older behaviors and older uh and older resolvers that were getting in the way of uh this is less for dnssec but it does i think get in the way of some of the dnssec validation you're point Alvaro about the diameter of the internet, right? Like, so the, the things are shrinking a bit, like there's consolidation that is, is sort of happening in businesses um, sort of to the core of the internet and around the edges of the internet. Um, and it does actually make it easier to um, coordinate effort and say, hey, you know, this, why don't we just turn um, the security protocol on now? And I think you saw a little bit of that in the, uh, the story with HTTPS, uh, in the browsers, right? Like, so the, there aren't that many browser manufacturers that you have to get into a room in order to say, you know, Hey, we, uh, we have noticed a problem with web security and we think we can fix it this way, this way, this way, right? Like, so it, it, it's easier to come to consensus among the people who, uh, can make the change than it would be in a truly, um, sort of completely decentralized 500 browsers sort of market, right? You know, and that has you know that 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 shrinking of the of the network, of course, has upsides and downsides. But I think for being able to evolve things, whether that's uh, getting new extensions, deploying extensions, or like sort of you know another um, area that I've worked in a bit, so transport protocol uh, evolution with quick, right? like so having uh, a smaller set of Actors that you have to convince in order to be able to say okay well we're gonna try this um actually makes the intractable problem tractable
2: right so yeah. now back to the to the hard question
1: I still don't have an answer for you like i' really I have spent most of my research career thinking about the internet because um because it's big and interesting right and like local networks it's one I don't really have the background on managing them I guess and the other is it's like this is going to sound kind of flip. It's it's not super interesting the 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 evolution in a local network, right? Like so the the naive view that that I as a as a researcher um sort of one career ago had was anytime you see you know like an organization like a company clearly that company has a com- a command structure that works properly and it it operates at all times with one intent and one voice. Uh, I. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, ideally that, that should, if that, you know, if we were
2: laughing about that, that, that should sort of line up into the point that you were making about uh, incentives and about coordination, right? Because we would have internal coordination. Right. Have the internal incentive. Right. Um, you know, one of the reasons I'm asking is because when we talk about routing and, and you, in your draft, you, you talked about integrity for BGV and the fact that there's none. I mean, there, there's some specified, but people still don't use it, not even on external sessions. Right. Um, and everyone thinks, or I think, I think everyone thinks that, you know, this is a, a limited domain. It's a closed um, implementation. I'm only talking to you. So the risk is a lot lower. Uh, so it goes back to that, that, that maybe the yeah. risk of anything happening to my BGP session. Right. Uh, but then we keep, you know, specifying, okay, we have uh, MD5, which okay, doesn't work. We have TCPAO, which no one uses. Um, mm-hmm. We should have something else, but even if we have something else,
1: Okay, now I, I, I understand your question differently, right? It's so the idea that it's actually we don't have to care about this quite as much on a on a, a local network for two reasons. One, hey, we can change it ourselves if we want to in the future, which leans on my naive view about how organizational politics work in in uh, sort of the the network operations community, um, and. It doesn't really matter what we do because it's not going to leak, which I think is a a yeah. a thing that we've told ourselves in networking for a very long time, uh, and was never really true, and I think it's less true now than than it it it, it has been simply because. So yeah, on the routing side, uh, I forget who I'm quoting here when I said the internet is a substrate for for building tunnels, um, <laughs> and yeah. you know, it's a substrate for building tunnels that itself is built out of tunnels, right? It's <laughs> Uh, you know, you look at a lot of, uh, for example, um, network topology research. So a, a big subfield of internet measurement where I spent a lot of time. Still believes that traceroute actually gives you a reasonable uh, uh,
0: <laughs> proximity, or, or
1: yeah, a reasonable proximity of to what's actually happening. Right? Yeah. There's a lot of work <laughs> on like you know dealiasing and saying, okay, well this this IP address actually belongs to this um, to this uh, AS as opposed to this AS, and completely ignores the fact that inside most networks and across some interdomain boundaries now, there's no layer three at all, right? Like it's just, you know, the packet doesn't experience the network, it experiences a hop. And in, a, in an environment like that, it's like, how can you tell what the boundary really is between, you know, it's very easy to forget which layer of tunneling you're in. Um, it's kind of this inception sort of, uh, you know, this inception idea um, of, of tunnels within tunnels or, or domains within domains. Um, which points to another way to um, to evolve things, right? Is like you can basically, and this is how we've done evolution, I guess, in, in uh, sort of network architecture for a while, is you just, if you can't make the actual network look the way that you want to, you just build an overlay, you make the overlay private, and then you build the features that you want to into the overlay, right? And the reason that that... I think this is the this is the first time I've ever actually found an argument that like MTU hell is good because the packet size down at layer 2 means that you can't do that forever whereas in other fields of computer science you can right, right. there
0: are, like, there are limits to rule 6A essentially
1: exactly right and that's that's a little bit unique to networking right because there there I mean like we've run into sort of the, the limits of um, of Moore's law, but I mean, I can play, you know, anybody can go and download games from computers from 20 years ago and play them in the browser because they've been um, like they're running the actual binary on a virtual machine that's been assembled down to WebAssembly, right? And it's like there's six or seven layers of operating systems in this stack and it doesn't matter, right? Like you still see the same uh, the same bits because there's there are many different um, orders of magnitude sort of in in what you can do with a cycle and what a cycle means in, in that uh, environment. Whereas in the network, uh, I know of some networks that are running sort of 9K packets, but for the most part, it's still 1500, right? And that actually limits your ability to overlay yourself into into sort of the, the spaces that other parts of computer science are going into now.
0: So, yeah, so I, and I think going back to your the whole concept of being the local stuff, I think part of it is, too, is that most of local connections are owned by, and I don't want to make this sound too bad, but it, it really is very bad, people who don't put as much thought into the way their network work as people who are in a provider. They just want it to work And they actually don't much care how it works once they get there. um, Right. Very dangerous, very dangerous place to be, in my opinion. But I see an awful lot of it in my world.
1: Which is also where a big part of the sort of this hump comes from, right, is, um, you know, I want my network to work. Uh, I am going to turn off all of the features that keep my network from working. And if those are the features that are giving me security, well, you know, a secure network that doesn't work that I didn't understand why it doesn't work is not as good as an insecure network that does. And like, I, you know, so, I mean, I have made a career thinking about this stuff and I am guilty of it, right? Like, so, uh, I I said at the beginning of this, uh, Oh no, that was a different call. I'm, I'm sort of between internet service providers right now, which means I have two consumer network uh, connections, uh, to my apartment right now. Uh, and the one that I just turned on uh, a couple of weeks ago is um, much faster and much nicer and is, not the one I'm currently connected to because the antennas for that wireless are on the other side of too much concrete. Um, so like where I am in this room is just too attenuated. Uh, and I got the uh, the uh, router that it shipped with. So it's a it's a geek internet service provider. So they shipped me a Taurus Omnia and I took it out of the box. So this is a, a very nice sort of like high-end open source, open WRT router um, built by the CZNIC people. Um, and they are, you know, Part of the 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 vanguard of putting better tools out there in order to deploy. Um, in their case, they're really interested in DNSSEC, um, and you know, I took the router out of the box and I plugged it in and I turned it on and, and I can ping quad eight, which is what I do when I check to see if I have IPv4 connectivity and I worked. And then I tried to use the web and it was like, okay, well, I don't know where that website is. Okay. There's something wrong with DNS. And I started sort of like, you know, just doing the the, the flipping random switches in the UI to debug it. And I found that the way to get it to work was to disable DNS sec. Great. Right? So that's what I did. <laughs> Right. And it made me really sad that I had this shiny new router from people who have built a router to make DNSSEC easy so that it actually was just, you know, validation with a checkbox. And I had to check the, check the box to get it to turn off. And it turned out it was a, you know, it had shipped with an old uh, rev of the, um, of the firmware and like it had gotten halfway through updating itself. So it was in a weird state and I just had to reboot it twice and it was fine. But like, you know here's me the author of this crap turning once. on my internet and it's like okay well let's disable dns because yeah because Q, twice
0: right not, twice not once that's the important thing
1: the reboot twice yes <laughs> <laughs> and it works now and i'm very happy with it i just need to you know run some wire to get around the thickness of the concrete problem so <laughs>
0: <laughs> thickness of the concrete problem <laughs> very very interesting so i think i think this has been a really fascinating discussion i think it's really good um that Uh, that this draft is out there. I think people need to think about it and not just from an internet wide perspective, but going back to Alvaro's question, this is really important for the individual network operator as well. Not just the global internet. We think we tend to think of these drafts as being, Oh, this is for the global internet. I don't need to read this because I just run some healthcare network or whatever, but really a lot of the information that's out there is really useful for even those guys. Um, Alvaro, where can people get in touch with you or do you don't blog or do you have a Twitter account or? Anything social? Are you social, Alvaro, or do you sit in the corner?
2: I, I usually sit in the corner, yes. Yeah, um, I, <laughs> I, I, yeah I have a Twitter account. I, I don't post a lot, uh, A-Ratana Cruz, C-R-U-Z, um, or I hang out in the ITF quite a bit.
0: Okay, ITF mailing list and stuff like that. I know Alvaro's on a couple of slacks, but they're super secret slacks, so you can't get there. <laughs> And Brian, how about you? Do you blog or is there a place people can go to see what you're working on other than IETF drafts? The Yeah,
1: so I, I, I blog when I say I blog, I think the last entry was last March because it's been a busy year um, at uh, trammel.ch, just last name dot um, C-C-T-L-D. Uh, And I tweet at um, brytram, B-R-I-T-R-A-M, but that's usually bicycle activism. That's sort of... Uh, I I tweet about network stuff from the IETF, but but usually I'm just annoyed about people trying to run me over.
0: (laughs) That would be annoying. I think there's a security problem there that needs to be addressed. (laughs) Maybe you need an armored bike.
1: I I have an armored bike, but that's yet a third. Um, that is yet a third podcast. So.
0: So very good. And I'm Russ White. You can always grab me at rule11.tech or on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter, but don't bother PMing me because I don't PM back on Twitter. I have too many social media stuff going on already for me to bother with uh, keeping up with all of it. So thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge and we'll catch you next time. Joining us, you can find the hedge at rule11.tech.